Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. I'm super excited today to be talking with Kurt Jamungle, uh, who some of my audience will undoubtedly know uh, as the lead producer of the Toe Channel, Theories of Everything channel. It has uh, some of the most remarkable interviews I've seen. The interview style is intense and deep and rich. Uh, hours upon hours of in-depth analysis of super uh, rich and uh, content, and yet thousands upon tens of thousands of people uh, line up to listen. Uh, Kurt, thanks so much for coming on to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. So uh, I really look forward to getting to know your story a little bit more. Uh, so, you know, I'm a clinician. Uh, and so I do like to hear people's kind of narrative. Uh, I know you're interested in mathematics and other kinds of things and also film. And then all of a sudden, uh, you got yourself tracked into the theories of everything. So uh, maybe you could start with just a little bit of background about who you are and how you got pulled into such a fascinating project. Since I was a kid, I've been interested in the physics kind of toe, the physics kind mm -hmm. of theory of everything that is unifying gravity into the standard model. And that was right. far before I knew what new, even Newtonian gravity was, let alone right. just what the standard model was. Right. But just the puzzle alone, I've always been, I love puzzles until uh -huh. any, uh -huh. any intellectual uh -huh. squabbling, I, I tend to like. So puzzles right. are akin to that, except you're doing that with, with something objective. You're not totally. fighting with someone in real time. So I then, I did math and physics in university and then went into stand-up comedy while I was in university and somewhat huh. abandoned physics and math and did filmmaking. Uh -huh. oh, hold on, actually, on the, I didn't know about the stand-up sure. comedy. Sure. Yeah, tell me a little bit sure. about that. That's fascinating. Sure. Yeah, well, it was painful as well as fascinating. <laughs> well, I bet, man. That'd be a lot. Talk about pressure. I um, was lucky enough to do well on my first time and most comedians do, right. they bomb terribly on the first sure. time. And, and the reason why, oh, well, it's lucky and unlucky because right. then I did well on my second and third. And then my fourth mm -hmm. time, I... I, I don't, I, you just don't know, you get used to all the laughs. And then all of a sudden when it didn't work, yep. I froze on stage, like Eminem ah. on eight mile. Yeah, and I yeah. couldn't, huh. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, I had to look mm -hmm. at my notes and even in the audience, they said, Oh, what are you doing for whatever reason? But they sensed I was so deeply yes. troubled and I got booed off stage. And I just remember walking out on queen street. Are you, are you familiar with Toronto? I'm not, no. Okay, well, anyway, I remember walking down Queen or, or University and I was never doing this again, never doing this again. And then I didn't do it for years. But somehow I mustered up the courage and was able to do it a couple more times, a few more okay. times. Gotcha. And as uh, a stand-up comedian, you generally want to progress past that point. You see it as a stepping right. stone. Sure. There are few who sure. are pure. Like Colin right. Quinn is pure. He's the best comedian that I know. Seinfeld is also pure because he went from stand-up to a show, which he didn't actually care whether or not it was successful, which mm. perhaps was what made it successful. Right. And then he went right back into stand-up. Right. Right. Chris Rock is also pure. Anyway, mm. so I I didn't I'm not pure. <laughs> I, I'm blemished in many ways. And so I saw stand-up as a the boxing ring for comedy. So that's where you right. sharpen your skills as, yeah. as to how to speak to people, how to be charismatic and uh -huh. formulate jokes and observe others com huh. comedy and see the structure. Sure. And then I wanted to become a, I wanted to do what Seinfeld did. I wanted to make a show like Larry David. Okay. Like okay. curb your enthusiasm. And so right, I wrote right. and it, it wasn't successful. I pitched it to Comedy Central or the Comedy Network and 
Canada didn't work out. And then I thought I'll just become a filmmaker. So I'll make it myself if no one else will. Then I started doing that after university. Uh And in the back of my mind, I've always been interested in in math and physics. So I frequently just look it up in my spare time, but not rigorously. Sure, many of these channels, like yourself, you've seen mm-hmm. Space Time, mm-hmm. for example, is one of them. PBS mm-hmm. is Space Time, yep. or Sabine Hossenfelder before Sabine yep. was sure famous. <laughs> and yep. and then I thought during the pandemic, why don't I interview people about what I'm incredibly interested in, which is right. theories of everything. I think I started with Donald Hoffman or uh-huh. Brian Keating, who has a podcast as well called the into the impossible podcast and then mm. and then it progressed and somehow the covid situation worked out for myself mm. as an as a reclusive umbratic person who likes mm-hmm. to be indoors right and the world was as well and uh-huh. the uh-huh. podcast got some views and so yeah. it just it all worked out for myself i know for millions right. of people it didn't for myself it worked out and i'm a germaphobe right. as well i'm I'm like a valetudinarian, so I'm constantly mm. aware, I'm constantly distancing myself from people and washing my hands. Now, I thought, Greg, mm. I thought, man, I would have to adapt to the world at some point. Mm-hmm. Never in my mind did I think the world would adapt <laughs> to me. Adapt this was my you. best case scenario. <laughs> yes, let's 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 elbow instead of hey man, hands. we can elbow oh, that. We can yes. you know we can do virtual hugs, right? That's clean. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, man. And tell me a little bit about, I mean, I'm really super impressed by the success of, of the program, especially given its content and its nature. It seems like it'd be really hard to launch that kind of content. And I'm just curious about how you understand your success in it. Well, luck is the, m- the main ingredient. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, I think that, that can't be underestimated. <laughs> luck, the grace of God, and COVID, and like, I'm not praising COVID, but you know what I mean? Right, no, I, I understand. The fact that people are indoors. You've already contextualized it, yeah. Yes, right, yes. Right, right, And And also, I tried out manifold paths, many, okay. what in the startup mm-hmm. world is called MVPs, which mm-hmm. I learned as a, as a, as a, as an entrepreneur, when I was doing filmmaking, I had a, I had a company called Indie Film TO, which was like a startup filmmaking company. Mm-hmm. And so I learned several business marketing tactics. Not that I employed any of the marketing for this. Mm. I wish I could have, but business mm-hmm. tactics in terms of you place content out, you listen to the feedback, you reiterate, that's called an MVP, a minimum viable product. You do that repeatedly. Mm. And the okay. faster that that can be done, mm-hmm. the, the, the quicker that you can find some optimal solution. I also take criticism extremely close to heart. And mm. I think that that is, it's, it's arduous on my psychological well-being mm-hmm. privately, but it's mm-hmm. publicly, it's been a boon because it improves the end product. Right. I take it too personally. So that's yeah. something that I need to work on. But either way, I read or I used to read every single comment and any negative mm-hmm. critique, I right. or even if it was a uh, an attempt to just put someone down. I would take it and think, okay, so what's the positive in this? What are they trying to say? Don't just dismiss them as much as I want to, as much as that's my right, first right. instinct. Right. And I would, I would also filter it with my own instincts and my own temperament because I don't want to just follow the crowd and whatever anyone thinks. So it has to sure. be both filters, of course, the society and then oneself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that also helped the podcast. But I think luck is the main ingredient. Mm. And was there any particular? 
set of events that you identify as the particular fortuitous luck or or is it can you see what that is or is it just yeah. sort of it happens and it must have been luck because uh, you're not really sure what happened yeah so the podcast started taking off when i interviewed donald hoffman and for yeah. that one i thought you know what i what the heck is he talking about when he says consciousness is fundamental and that he can derive quantum mechanics what the heck is he talking about no one has made that explicit to me however i have a background in math I've abandoned it for several years. Why don't I look at the papers? Why don't I treat this as if I'm an academic? I'm not. I, 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 I revere academics. I would, I would, even if I published, I wouldn't desecrate the, <laughs> the academy by considering myself to be anywhere close to a member of it. But anyway, I thought I'll just go through the paper with a fine tooth comb, pen and paper, and, and ask him questions and try to understand this theory. So I did that. And it seemed like no one had done that before. Yep. And then that started getting plenty of traction over time. And I thought, oh, that's that's great because that's actually what I I love to do because I actually understand the theory more. I, right. I don't understand what it means when someone says consciousness is fundamental unless they, well, that's false. At the time, I didn't understand what it meant mm -hmm. when someone was giving, when someone was conveying their theories, unless I saw right. it in an explicit formula, and unless I saw the explicit formulas behind it. Mm -hmm. So then I decided to take a more rigorous approach. And I say rigorous extremely loosely because mm -hmm. the way no. a mathematician or a physicist defines rigor is like, I, I'm. I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just a drop in the bucket. Anyway, that seemed to take off. So I would say it was yeah. that. Gotcha. Approach. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed that podcast immensely. Uh, I've been tracking Donald for a bit and certainly understood his frame of reference uh, substantial qualitatively better as a function of your interview with him. So I deeply appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I could see why it was uh, uh, a main attractor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm curious. Then also, in, yep. Continue, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Mm -hmm. No, 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 you go. Well, then I'm, you know, I kind of, okay. So this is um, now, then all of a sudden starts taking off. Now you start to interviewing, uh, you know, you have sort of a legendary series with John Verveke and Bernardo Castrop, which I can be loved to dialogue with you some about. And then all these other interesting, then you got into the whole UFO thing. So what I'd like to dialogue a little bit about is just kind of where you are as you embark in this journey and explore these different perspectives and um, what kinds of things have really struck you and impacted you in a particular kind of way. And uh, maybe get a sense of kind of where your worldview is. What are you most excited about in relationship to this? What do you think uh, are kind of toe versions that may be really onto something and those kinds of questions I'm eager for uh, to get your reflections on. I think that the toes that I consider to be most credible, and I don't like to think like that, but mm -hmm. if I was to make some demarcation that a toe needs to apply to itself. So for example, the phrase, everything in moderation, mm -hmm. you hear people append that with everything in moderation, including moderation, because they're, mm -hmm altering the sentence to apply to itself but the sentence as it stands everything in moderation doesn't apply to itself and many of the postmodern philosophies don't exactly apply to themselves at least not in at a level that i can see for example mm -hmm. there are no grand narratives okay mm -hmm. but does that apply to the statement that there are no grand narratives itself or there are no truth statements and, right. and you can get into some liars paradox and so on so i think that uh oh yes and so let's say a physical toe well, is this simply an equation? But how do those equations run? 
what says that an electron should follow those laws? What are, mm -hmm. What's the meta law behind that? Mm -hmm. So is a, is a unification of gravity in the standard model truly a theory of everything as we intend the word everything to mean? Mm -hmm. Or is it simply a pinky toe rather than a, mm -hmm. a big toe as Thomas Campbell mm -hmm. calls it? Nice. Well, well, there are larger questions that loom with regard to what is a what are is what are the the desiderata of a toe? So, what are the mm -hmm. what right. are the points that make up a toe? Yep. Mm -hmm. And yep. and I think that consciousness, an explanation of what consciousness is, should be in there. Though, if it's not, then there needs to be an explanation of why there isn't. So that right. is to say, reductionism, or sorry, an emergent that consciousness is emergent. Mm -hmm. I would want to see why that's conceivably the case. So if you mm -hmm. were to say the consciousness is not fundamental, I, I'm interested in that, mm -hmm. in, in some explanation around that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, now as for which toes do I, do I happen to like? I like the CTMU, but I don't understand it and I've forgotten it. For, it's mm. been quite some time. It was one year ago, I think, that I spoke to yep. Chris Langan. Okay, yeah. Chris Langan, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, been a year and I, I happen to like, I don't know if you... If I if I've said this aloud, by the way, when is this going to air? In a week or two weeks, or um, this will probably air in about three four weeks. Okay, so I have this concept called row, of row, which I don't think I've said. I think it'll be said in two other places now. By the time this comes out, okay. it's just an internal phrase that I use: a resonor of existence. I'm just pulling mm -hmm. up my notes here. So a resonor of existence. Firstly, what is a resonor? Well, it's a term from from art, from narrative, which says someone who the character who voices the central theme or philosophy of a piece of fiction. So mm -hmm. you'll watch, mm -hmm. you'll watch, let's say, I'm trying to think of, well, some generally this character comes about toward the end or they say some statement that sums up the entire film. And, ah, mm -hmm. and then you realize, uh, okay, that's meant for the audience. That's actually not meant mm -hmm. for the character in the film. That's meant to some right. summarize. Mm -hmm. Okay. I call certain people resonors of existence. Mm. And those include Bach, so Yosha Bach, Bernardo okay. Castro, John Verveke, yourself, actually, and Chris Langan. There are people who are individuals who have an, an avant-garde perspective on the world, like their own mm -hmm. toe that they formulated somewhat singularly, so mm -hmm. by themselves. Mm -hmm. And that toe is metaphysical. Mm -hmm. So it has some claims to ontology. And yep. then... And they also don't have a disdain for traditional religion. And that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's actually fairly rare in, mm. in our, well, in our world. Mm -hmm. And they also have a, a flair for rigor. It's those people I call Rose and Michael Levin is one. Thomas Campbell mm -hmm. is one. Okay. Heidegger is also one, but he's All no right, longer cool. around. Uh -huh. And same with Wittgenstein. Penrose. Right. So it's not just people I've interviewed. Right, right, right. And essentially, they're they're like a a ragtag group of people brought under the umbrella because they try to wrestle with whatever that means, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I what know what that this means. reality is. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, oh, man. I know what that means. Yeah, and and, and despite okay. them dealing with disparate subjects like yourself, maybe you see that there's a connection between you and Verveki. Well, there's all there's a connection between any two objects if seen yep. from an, a certain abstract level, right? Well, what's the connection between you and Bach? Well, th there's some umbrella. I don't. I haven't made it. Anyone who studies this can see it, but to make it explicit, 
and unblurred is difficult. Definitely, right. Yes, yes. And in mathematics, there's something called associativity. Have you heard of this term? Vaguely, but I definitely... Okay, so, so the fact that five times two times three, mm -hmm. you can put the brackets between the five and the two. Yep. So you can do 10 times three. Mm -hmm. Or you can do five times three, so 15 times two. So that, that's you can put the brackets anywhere that's called associativity you can put the brackets anywhere and it actually comes up okay. with the same answer right but i don't think that's the case with with the rows so in mathematics there's a term called non-associativity right okay v very few number systems are non-associative it's like difficult right now you're thinking well, well how could you construct an object any other way well there are mm. ways there are ways there, yeah. right and so i consider them to be like the a rat pack like a philosophical rat pack the right. rows, uh-huh but non-associative uh -huh. rat pack uh. and Interesting. Uh, huh. Much of my if you could if you could find of, the yes, right yes, parentheses, yes. you'd find the right answer, set, and then that would yeah, and, core, you and Verveke, you and you and Verveke speaking with Kastrup, wouldn't it be the same as if you were somehow on the same side as of Kastrup, right? Speaking with Verveke, you would right. come up with a different yep. dialogue. I mean, that, that seems exactly. obviously true. That seems obviously well, that's true with any dialogue, though. Any well, the nature of the intersection creating different aspectualizing features around, to use John's term, aspectualizing features around, uh, you know, what he now would call the eidetic through line. Uh, so in terms of like, so then the combination of those certainly yield different flavors. Uh, what I love then, about John is mm -hmm. that he never uses jargon. Like he explains it simply, yep. doesn't use anyone's term. No, I'm just messing around. <laughs> He never, he never uses a term that no one knows what it means. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding around. Yeah, that, that's something like for John, I have to have a dictionary, like my own John dictionary, Vervakian dictionary. John dictionary, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. So what no, it's been a really, real, yeah. um, I'm, I'm super psyched. I, th I think that the, I, I'm, I'll make the claim that I don't think that any two meta theories have ever been synced up quite as intimately as John and mine's have been. So that's a, Great, it's a pretty great. cool thing because I don't think, I mean, they're Roy Bashkar and Ken Wilbur's systems got attempted to get synced together uh, in the, this previous decade. There was a series of conferences. Critical realism is Roy Bashkar's version. And of course, integral theory is Ken Wilbur. And then they tried to put, there were conferences that put those things together with varying degrees of success, depending on who you asked. And I think it was a useful complementarity set of conversations. But what Roy Bashkar, huh? Roy Bashkar is a very important figure, in my estimation. Ah, <laughs> He's a yeah. philosopher um, uh, of science, uh, and he built what's called critical realism. He's actually has different three different phases. He's a meta theorist. Um, critical realism uh, basically refers to a meta modern. I don't know if you know the term meta modern in these circles. John likes in a meta modern circle, so am I. It's the thing that comes after postmodern. Um, it's the synthesis, really, the shortest line into it is a synthesis between a modernist view of science and truth and rationality and the postmodern critique of that, uh, which is, hey, you're contextualized in an imminent social historical justificatory context that power is really the underlying legitimizing pragmatic function rather than if that's even a truth claim <laughs> to be then mm -hmm. made and emphasized mm -hmm. in relationship to context. So that's the short narrative of what a postmodern critique of modernity is. 
the metamodern petition is a synthesis. So if there's a thesis that you can arrive at analytic truth claims through reason and rationality and experimentation, uh, then the critic is, no, you're a human justifying contextual being that's been engaged in power relations. The synthesis is like, yeah, no, both of those are truth. And you can extract, um, you know, large scale truth claims in relation to that. You can get develop synthetic truth claims in relationship to that. Critical realism is, is essentially that synthesis where the critical is the awareness of what do you call the social planar factors that give rise to the construction of knowledge. <laughs> and the realism is there's an aspect of scientific realism that must be granted its due, what he calls the, the Tina principle, is that there is no alternative and that there's a transcendent ontology uh, that can be achieved, uh, at least through aspects of science. <laughs> For what's example, that, why is it, what's it called? Tina principle? The Tina is as there is, there T is no alternative. Okay. So, Excuse me, I just got positive. So, so what COVID, it, by the way, so that, I'm a little oh, uh, oh, under the weather. Okay. okay. <laughs> so if Man, I'm coughing a little bit and a little frog in the people, throat, it, many people I'm not hung over. Um, Some anyway, of the viewers or listeners may not be aware that that we've rescheduled this several times. I appreciate you doing this, and, and you could have rescheduled with me mm. again. So I, I could, I, I, I feel good kept, enough. <laughs> great, great, great. I kept putting it off because of, I've had terrible issues with sleep and other. The psychological mm. problems well sorry not psychological <laughs> problems but psychological let's uh we're, let's we're very loving about all those kinds of things on the program yeah. i'm a clinical psychologist so you know great we're, we're, great great those, have uh, you heard of the dark night with... of the soul of course <laughs> i've hung in a, i've hung there a couple of times so yeah, yes, yeah I'm, well i'm, I'm currently going of that dynamic. Uh, if 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 well well we can talk about that afterward so the synthesis yeah. okay so there's there are two opposing principles and then you reconcile them with a synthesis by saying the certain they're both correct in some perspective or they're both mm -hmm. okay and then the critical realist is that a is that a synthesis itself because it's saying both the realist and the postmodernist are correct yeah in essence it, it certainly would be so in other words he creates a philosophy of understanding the world what he calls critical realism bill says back in 1975 um starts it in terms of really makes the first formal set of statements about it he goes through a number of three different phases in his development. Unfortunately, he passes away in 2014. Um, but anyway, the, the easiest way to say it is that his first set of arguments uh, is that science is a social construction, okay, on the one hand. So it's people getting together and construing the world in a particular way. And that is, you have to take into consideration the uh, epistemological context of the social construction of knowledge. That's the critical aspect of uh, Roy Bashkar's position. But when you look at the way in which knowledge is constructed, um, he argues that although, yes, that's true, um, he argues there's, an, uh, there's a line from Kant that really gives rise to what he calls the epistemological fallacy. The epistemological fallacy, he argues, is that you can, that you can reduce ontology to epistemology, meaning that really a lot of people get into, if you think about it in relationship to the Kantian view of, well, there's the phenomena and that's all we really have access to. We never have access to the nomina. Then in some ways he's basically contextualizing all of our ontological claims and our phenomenological claims, which is an epistemological argument, okay? Um, well, Bashkar says actually, no, we need to look deeper than that because there are ways to look at uh, develop a transcendent realism, okay? 
whereby the mapping that we have done, say, of the material universe, at least in some features of it, is such that that mapping is ontologically correct. Okay, you can make a particular type of claim, uh, and he calls this transcendent realism. Um, I will add a thought experiment. Okay, to I, I'm partially a transcendent realist like Roy Bashkar, and my thought experiment to say this is what I mean by a um, by a transcendent realist is if there were aliens and the aliens engaged in the analytic understanding of the universe like we did, um, they would then map the material universe as consisting of atoms uh, that are made up of the periods that correspond in a very obvious way to the periodic table of the elements. They, of course, wouldn't necessarily arrange them that way. There are a lot of different ways you might arrange them. But the idea that there would be electrons, uh, protons, neutrons, quarks, four fundamental forces, etc., you wouldn't be able to propositionally map the material plane of complexification without those concepts. Okay, that's a Tina principle, meaning that we know enough about matter and we used enough deductive empirical reasoning and abductive reasoning to rule out other alternatives uh, that we have a reasonable map of a chunk of the universe that can't be mapped differently. Okay, so the transcendent realist perspective is if you're going to bring a particular type of propositional knowing system to it, to it, there would not be a way to map it as coherently but then completely differently, you know, like uh, there'd be, you know, so, and that would be the question. If there's another epistemological system, okay, that could map the universe in a totally different way that then utilizes it with the same degree of pragmatism, there's another way to see the world um, through whatever, you know, um, observatory measurement, however you imagine an alien system knowing about the world. Uh, but if it uses propositional deductive logic quantification, it should map the world in relationship to uh, a way that would correspond to the way uh, we map the world if you're a transcendent realist. Okay, so I have some, have some questions. Yeah, sure. So, so, so you, you see that as being incontrovertible that aliens or that other beings would map Absolutely the world, not incontrovertible. Would, would... No, it would make me, so uh, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a transcendent realist by making the prediction that they would do that. If they would come back and have a totally different uh, set, then the idea of basically being uh, backed into a more of an epistemological idealist position about what we can say about knowledge it would become. So if they were able to map the world in a totally different way that had similar kinds of correspondence and pragmatic utility, and it just enabled us to see the material dimensional complexity in a totally different way that we weren't aware of, um, that, that, you know, opened up our eyes to a whole new reality as a function of their knowing capacity in a propositional light. There's different kinds of knowing, as John will tell you, uh, but in a propositional deductive system, they should align if from a transcendent realist perspective. That's the prediction. If they didn't, then the transcendent realist perspective is deeply weakened because it basically means that, yes, indeed, our understanding and the division of the world up into atoms up into the four fundamental forces is a function of the way our con subjective construal system engages in cause-effect relations, engages in space-time relations, and those kinds of elements. So the categories of, a of the human mind and the epistemological structure that it brings to bear then plays a deeper causal role in what we claim to be ontological, meaning it is more epistemologically based. 
Okay, so it's a question about what really derives the logical relations. Is this the epistemology of the knower or the ontic into ontological structure of the known? That's a that's a that's the the realist versus idealist often or realist emphasis on epistemology versus ontology. Okay, so to me, if you were to then find a whole nother independent knower that knew with enough correspondence, i.e. propositional knower, that then derived a map that then was identical, more or less, like, oh, that's your version of, you know, you just speak in a different language, but you uh -huh. know what a proton is, you know what a neutron is, you know what electrons are, you know what electromagnetic radiation is, you know what gravity is, you know what strong and weak nuclear forces are, you know what muons are. If they know uh -huh. what all of those things are, and they map them in the same sort of basic way, the claim then that you have generated an onto epistemology, meaning I've got a knowledge system, how I know of an ontology of what it is that maps the proper relations. Sorry, somebody comes repeating to, that, the onto epistemology. Yeah. What, what can you repeat that phrase and what it means? Yeah, the onto epistemology, the way I would use the term, refers to our knowledge systems. Epistemology meaning how we know and how we justify. Ontology meaning the claims we make about reality. Okay. If okay. our onto epistemology about reality, so for example, the standard theory of elementary particle physics, okay, is an, I would consider that an onto epistemology about a dimension of the universe. Okay. Okay. And then the question is, is that to, to what extent does that onto epistemology correspond to what you might label the ontic or what Kant would call the nomena? What's the what's the reality independent of what we know it and how tightly does our mapping correspond to it you become more and more of a realist when you say there the mapping of your onto epistemology tightly both corresponds and then eliminates other possibilities that's the tina principle there's no real other possibility you can eliminate all other possibilities and say actually this is the mapping at a foundational layer of this particular entity and we have looked at it through all these different angles. And while there certainly may be always different aspectualized elements, there's a foundational through line that you have mapped accurately that then you make climbs to is like, this is what it really is. And so what's then, meant by the term mapping? Well, I mean, basically mapping is from a correspondent epistemology, meaning you develop a particular model representation schema. Yeah, let, let me let me explain what I mean. You, mm -hmm. you hear plenty in the correspondence theory of truth that, okay, so we have some truth and somehow the structure of our claim is somehow similar to the structure of reality. But then I'm, I'm always unclear, what does it mean to correspond? It's just taken for granted. Yeah, that it has some correspondence. What, what does it mean when someone says it corresponds? Well, the correspondence is basically then tied together the way I would put it. And this is, of course, a, at one level, a very, at a high level of abstraction, this gets very complicated. But at a, in a concrete way, the experimental methodology of science with its hypothesis generation, prediction, and test in relation to alternative models is the process by which you then correspond you test the model, okay? So the model then says, oh, if your map, and this is the map, and this is the territory, and you're tracking this, it says that, well, the next turn should be this way. So you make a prediction under these circumstances, the turn's gonna go this way, and then you develop a hypothesis, you run a particular test, and then you determine. And if it is the case that your map 
predicts where the territory is going to go in the future, then you develop better uh, um, confidence and then the correspondence, especially if you can develop clarity about you know, unusual predictors to use a Popperian falsifiable frame. And then you test alternative models. And to the extent that it holds better than other models, you get a correspondent confidence in the correspondence. Okay. So let me say, let me, let me ask a question like this. Let's say we're going down some corridor and then it's, it's, it's dark far. So we don't know mm -hmm. if there's going to be a door in front of us, to the left of us, to the right of us, or no door at all. But let's say you make a claim. You say there's going to be a door to the left. Then we say, well, we're going to verify that by progressing forward and we'll see is the door on the left. Okay. Now, when you say the claim, the door is on the left, you mean something by that. It's not just scribblings because you have to have, okay. So now you mean something about that. Now, is this meaning, this meaning to the word left? Where is that? And are, is what you're saying, like your words are then pointing to this word called left, sorry, to the meaning called left. And then that left meaning is somehow associated with what we then observe. All of that seems so nebulous to me. Hmm. It's, it's extremely difficult to make that concrete for me. I'm trying to think in terms of graphs and how this mm -hmm. can be. Well, the, the graph of, of the word of the, sorry, the graph of the meaning mm -hmm. left, the graph associated with meaning left is associated with the graph of, is somehow isomorphic or homomorphic to the right. graph of the world. But I, I'm unsure of how all of that works and how we even know that when I say, or when you say left, that indeed we've gotten that correct because our meaning matched. How do we know we're not retrodicting and saying so? How do we know that any of that is, is working? Totally. I, well, let okay, me know so, why I was clear. Yeah, no, that, well, I think the con... Context of that question is, uh, you know, will vary how I would answer that in a wide variety of different ways. Meaning, we could be in a dark thing, and I say left, and a door shows up left, and it's like, well, what did you actually mean? And my mapping relative to the thing is unbelievably vague. Okay, so the short answer, what I mean is, there's an epistemic functioning of the mapping of the territory. This is the knowing epistemic structure that gives you a semantic meaning-making structure. So, a semantic meaning-making structure can be corresponded to the world in a particular way in this some map territory kind of relation right we can, we may can just, I, we, yeah may i interrupt at different points when i'm not following oh, of course okay because it seems yeah, like you no. have this extremely well articulated and so i can i can interject and you'll be able to follow uh, you'll be able to you'll be able to remember i'm, I'm totally happy to great absolutely great 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 okay so when you say semantic meaning making mm -hmm. semantic meaning making is there something different between a semantic meaning making and a meaning making? No, there's a bit of redundancy there. I will, yeah, okay, the reason okay. that I made that tie is because I will use semantic, but people will sometimes use that as only propositional, but it also semantic can mean a broader meaning making subjective construal. Okay. 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 So semantic meaning making, that's simply to emphasize that this isn't relegated to the propositional. It's not relegated to the property. Yeah, right, 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 great, great. Yeah. Okay, okay, sorry, continue now. So you're saying that yeah. you have some, let's say, uh, bleary idea. Well, you're, you're saying it's not bleary. It's actually specific and concrete. Right, well, I'm saying, I mean, we if we want to use a classic Kantian model, basically, there is an epistemic construal of category and relation, okay, that then is corresponding. This is your phenomenological epistemic construal that's corresponding with some 
aspect of reality. You can never know the thing in itself because it's coming through an epistemic epistemological process. Okay. But you can certainly map or, or connect aspects. You can show that your map's inaccurate to use, a, again, go back to Popper. You can falsify, although the how you falsify and what constitutes a genuine falsification versus what it can be explained in other things is a, is a technical dimension. But you can wonder to what extent does the map fit with the data versus the map doesn't fit with the data. Okay, if you engage in, if we're in, say, a scientific kind of correspondent theory of truth, that's the entire process of the method of science is that, okay, a, the implication of a particular construal of understanding would suggest that you make predictions about the way the understanding would unfold. And then you go to look at that spot. And then you find if that data are found in relationship to that, that gives you confidence in the mapping. I mean, that's a, and then at, at various levels, you can make arguments about the utility of this and its complexity. What I was saying is in the context, and I will give it back to you as somebody who studied you know, in the context of the standard theory of elementary particle physics, I think the argument that the universe is made up of certain kinds of logical relations, the vast majority of which we were clueless about, but that we can find islands of relation that we have studied in particular kinds of ways, both mathematically and experimentally, and that we can derive very robust relations, mapping of those relations, for example, the periodic table of the elements and the standard theory of elementary particle physics affords us a particular type of ontology. We have an ontology of particles, and I believe it's a transcendent realist ontology, meaning that our propositional network understanding of the particle relation, okay, is such that there really wouldn't be an alien that would come along and would delineate six other forces that are not corresponding at all to electromagnetic, gravitational, strong, and weak. They'd be like, there's these other forces. Now that's possible in the sense that there's edges to our knowledge like dark energy, dark matter, but what they should show from a transcendent realist perspective is there, if they are more advanced understanding, they should be able to look at where we are, just like we can look at Newton and be like, oh, okay, that's what you guys understood. We can understand, we understand it greater. And really you had a narrow appreciation. Actually, there's one singular force. It splits all these other ways, dark energy, dark matter folds back onto this and blah, blah, blah. But you are looking at one particular aspect of an ontology that has coherence and is real. I understand. Okay. Yeah, that's and I believe that that's the case. I believe that science has a, a realist uh, capacity in it, not a foundational realism, uh, but a correspondent realist capacity to generate uh, transcendent claims about the universe. Uh, and I'd love to find an alien and see what that was the case. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm curious what the differences between this and something called naive realism, because I haven't looked up much into naive, naive yeah. realism. I, I, I imagine that it's the folklore, what we think of as, sorry, as a, as a common people of, when I, I'm, a, I'm a common person yeah. in terms of yeah. what it means to be real. Not that mm -hmm. I believe it, but the, my understanding right. of it. So that's, I assume, naive realism. Uh -huh. And so I want to know, I'm going to just state the questions and then I'm going to come back to them before I forget sure. them. So what is naive realism's relationship to what transcendental realism is? And then... Mm -hmm. Additionally, when you say, well, let me compare notes with an alien. To me, that assumes already that one can interact with the alien. So, so you know, you, you've heard of, so, so what if there are aliens and we can't interact with them because, or other life forms, 
and they're operating in some mm -hmm. space that's close to ours, similar to ours, but not not influencing, not interacting with ours, and in such a manner that they can have completely different laws of physics. We would never know, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they're not there. Now, obviously, sure. it depends on what the heck does one mean by there, because one can define existence any way one likes and define the answer to be, well, all, all that exists is what we can interact with. Right. I don't know if that's if that comports with what we think of inter of existence to mean in other circumstances. But anyway, so the two questions are in mm -hmm. what's naive realism's naive realism's relationship to what you just outlined, and then number two is when when you're looking at an alien who may have a more advanced knowledge of physics than ourselves or a more primitive, but let's say advanced because that's easier to mm -hmm. understand because we can imagine ourselves looking at chimps and so on. So they look at us the way that we look at ants. Yep. Then I'm, I'm saying that that assumes that we have an interaction. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So naive realism, uh, I mean, there's different variants. Jim Rutt tries to identify, sometimes he'll take naive realism to a strong uh, view. The, the simple version of naive realism is you open your eyes, you perceive the world as it is. Um, and, and you then have direct access to the world. You see that the world is given to you as it is. I am really sitting in a chair. I am really um, on a computer talking with you. Uh, and, you know, we're really having a good conversation. Okay. Uh, the issue with naive realism is that it doesn't analyze with refinement the relationship between reality and how reality is known. It takes reality as presenting itself to all knowers more or less equivalently, usually then through the subject who is prof professing okay, to know. So that's what I would consider naive realism to be. Then scientific realism then is the process by which modern empirical natural science developed a particular epistemological structure and then began to map nature in relationship to that and build a cumulative ontological structure to make claims about the nature of nature. Okay. Okay, now, uh, now going back to this notion of having some comparison between the like speaking to mm -hmm. them implies that there's an interaction. Right. Well, that's so what I I did say that that the alien to for this transcendent realist argument thought experiment there had to be a particular kind of knowing that the that we needed to be able to correspond with or else that's then there's certainly opportunities for other ways of being and knowing in the world that I can't even fathom that they may have access to. That would enable them to participate in the world, do things and be in particular ways that, you know, just open up huge, unforeseen. I certainly believe we humans only have one small aspectualized slice of reality, okay? Meaning that we're, our, we're knowing through particular lenses. There's definitely a human category of mind structure that we're imputing, that we're enormously limited by, our sensory, conceptual, material that we can make sense out of greatly limits us. The scientific method and the process of cumulative knowledge, or especially in physics, chemistry, and biology, and then you get to my discipline, psychology, where it all freaking breaks down. And my whole point is actually we can rotate psychology, get an ontology that continues to extend into psychology. Um, but we have achieved a particular stance, epistemological structure gives rise to an ontological mapping that is uh, warrants the term realism, such that it, it's organized that, uh, like uh, Roy Bashkar, the Satina principle, there is no alternative. 
if there's another propositional network that is going to map the stratified layers of nature, it's going to come up with a very similar mapping. That's the issue. So if they use similar kinds of knowing and they analyze it in similar ways, they, there, there should be a fundamental gross correspondence with the spine of our understanding in the limited areas that we have achieved it. That's what the, that's what the argument is. Is there a notion of what is more real than something else in your model or in transcendental realism? Like so-and-so is more real. This is less real. This is an illusion or optical illusion or whatever kind of illusion. Well, you're going to have to yeah, just say what you mean by real. <laughs> okay, um, I'll give so you. So if, you, you if the, you're going to say yeah. that certainly some ideas uh, correspond to reality more than other ideas are. Okay, you know, so so the flying spaghetti monster is it a real thing? Well, it's an ideational content, and I just said the words in relation, uh, so that particular exists. But the flying spaghetti monster, as an idea that actually lives in the world, or um, what was it, Whitehead's teacup yeah, or whatever? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is, in the view that you outlined about the standard model and mm -hmm. and particles and so on my view of science is much more operational rather than realist. Mm -hmm. I would say that science properly construed, but this is just me. I'd yeah, say no, science well, properly construed about what our philosophy right, is. Right, uh -huh. right, right. And then, and that it actually doesn't make ontological claims. Those that's the job of the philosopher mm -hmm. that science just says, do this and this will happen. These right. equations seem to describe reality, whether or not those relationships describe, sorry, they don't describe reality. Those, it doesn't say that it says, these equations, when you do this, this will happen in this manner, in this yep. manner. And whether or not the electron exists, quote unquote, well, it depends on, it depends on what one means by exists. You can so, define, one can define. Okay. So then in the scientific realist point of view with atoms being fundamental, it's like, it's, it has that this comprises atoms. And the way that we say that the atoms are more real is because we have a, it's called reductionism, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to frame it in terms of cause, in, in terms of causation. So the electrons have some more of a fundamental role because they cause something else and that the, this can be viewed more accurately by modeling it in terms of the constituent parts and so on. And we do that. At, not at infinitum, but it stops at, let's say, the quantum fields, as far as we know. Okay, so that to me, does that presume reductionism, or does one derive reductionism? And and are you assuming a reductionist account in, in the transcendental realist approach, or, or is there some other way that one comes up with the definition of what reality, quote-unquote, is? Right, so I, I, so first off, and you talk at least, so yeah, you can talk about me, am I talking for Roy Bashkar? Am I talking for me? Am I talking for Roy? There are lots of different, you know, you got to contextualize. Okay? Yeah, okay, how and about yourself? Sure. How about yourself? Um, and so uh, the, the first thing that you talk is going to bring to bear is that all human knowledge systems uh, in the academy are going to be propositional knowledge systems, okay? Okay. So networks of propositions which then Utah specifies as justification systems, okay? A justification system operates, okay, on the pragmatic is-ought function. So it just, all, this is science. Science is going to be a justification system, okay? In fact, all the philosophy 
are justification systems, all right? So a justification system to make a question about, okay, well, what's real? The first thing it says, well, what's the knowledge system that you're operating from, okay? The knowledge system that you're operating from is then going to make claims about the epistemological and ontological relations. And then that's the concept of real is going to sit inside of a knowledge system. So the first thing, it's a, you talk itself is a unified theory of knowledge. Okay. So you want to get clear about what you mean by when you start saying, well, what's real? Okay. It's like, well, what's real is dependent upon a referent about what you mean by real. Okay. And there will be different epistemological systems. All right. That delineate real in different ways. Okay. Uh, so if you do like Arthur Eddington's two tables, okay, Arthur Eddington has a famous example of two tables, and there's the one table that presents itself to you like this desk, okay, and it looks like a desk and it's strong, and I can put my arm on it, and it's obviously solid, okay, and it's brown, and it has all these qualities. Well, this is naive realism. The desk is real, okay? And there's a way in which that's absolutely accurate. It's not wrong to say that the desk is real. In fact, if you were to say that the desk is not real, there would be lots of reasons in a particular epistemological system that you'd be kind of crazy, okay? From a scientific perspective, now we're going to shift into a particular, to me, mm -hmm. okay, you're going to okay. change the lens about what we're actually meaning, and I believe that I'm, a, I'm trying to build a coherent scientific ontology. It's one of the things that you talk says. Is a, and then we can actually stitch together a scientific epistemology that generates a scientific ontology that does a good job of mapping the natural world. That's, the, that's basically the scientific aspect of justification. Okay. So we then, it, then you sip inside scientific knowing, and inside scientific knowing, what this is, is an example of material culture, but the concept of a desk, okay, doesn't exist at the level of the foundational existence of reality that we mapped. Energy information patterns then that grow into particles that grow into atoms that grow into molecules that go across scale, those are stack complexifications on the stratified layers of nature that we've been able to deduce and analyze and reductively and historically track through cosmic evolutionary process. Okay, okay let me gives, see. Sorry, yeah. sorry, continue. Continue. No, that, I'll stop there. Okay, okay, let me see if I can make an analogy. So you've heard many people say that there's, that the world is like a diamond. There are different interpretations, much like there are different mm -hmm. sides of a diamond. Okay, so let's say the naive realist is just one facet of this yep. one lens that one can put on, but yep. um, let me just view it in terms of a diamond. Mm -hmm. And one can rotate in to see it from the scientific standpoint and say that the desk, as we understand it from the naive realist perspective, doesn't exist. But it, but th then there are several other aspects. There are several other forms of, yep. I imagine you call them knowing, but I'm unsure if that's the case. That's fine. Epistemological mm -hmm. frameworks? Is that what you're yeah. calling? Uh, I would okay. aspectualize via epistemological frameworks. I'll use John. I like John's. Sure, 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 it's sure. It's technical. It is sure, technical. Sure, sure. But anyway. Now, are you suggesting any one of these sides of the diamond is more fundamental or more real than the other? Or is there, and you call and it's called you talk, by the way, so unified mm -hmm. theory, which to me implies that they're all pointing toward the center. Somehow there's a way that we can view them all. So there well, is some 
there is a framework. Okay. Right. Well, well, right. So, I mean, again, depending on context. Um, so if we now, we can talk about you talk to whatever extent you want. I am here to get to know you, but we can dialogue. Yes, 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 if, yes, if you're yes, cool yes. with this, I'm well, cool with well, this. Well, just guess, a, for wanna... the people who are wondering what the heck, who, who's the interviewer, who's the interviewer? Yeah. Well, <laughs> part, partly I'm, I'm much more, I, 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 I think that the quest for knowledge is more noble than its attainment. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm much more of a curious person. Yeah. And I, if, if you want to get, if one who is listening to this wants to get to know me, it's, it's probably best to get to know me through the questions that I ask rather than by right. asking Love me questions. That. I don't know I, much I mean, about anything. I, I, so, but anyway, Unified, uh, as folks of the podcast know, it takes its direct meaning from Edward Wilson's 1998 book, Consilience. Um, so consilience is an, you know, the unity of knowledge. Um, it's a coherentist vision. So a coherentist model of truth uh, argues that you can develop a big picture uh, view that's internally coherent, okay, in relationship to and affords the capacity then uh, for full or understanding of whatever it is that you say you have coherent understanding of. So a coherentist view emphasizes the interrelationship of the parts, okay, and their relative uh, sense-making, their intelligibility, their harmony, um, and looks at things to what extent are things, you know, fundamentally fragmented. So the, uh, depending on the angle you look at it, but most people in physics say, hey, quantum mechanics and the way it quantizes the world and the nature in which it uses particular types of structures relative to general relativity, there's an incoherence there, definitely. Okay, there's a fragmentation there. Um, when you look at the world in general, do you see an interlocking network of facts that jump together uh, to form a coherent picture, that's uh, E.O. Wilson's conception of consilience, or, or and that's what my conception of unified is. Um, and it's unified around a particular set of parameters, okay? Uh, so I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not a foundationalist in the sense that a foundationalist is like, oh, I know what the foundational truth is. I know what the absolute truth is in the universe. Uh, I have, a, a, you know, this is no matter what anybody says, this is what's true and clean at its foundational depths. I'm not a foundationalist. Uh, very few scientists would be a foundationalist. Um, but uh, so what is unified is the argument that coming off of the emergence of the modern empirical natural scientific enterprise, okay, there was a fundamental break, a fracture in our understanding, uh, what I call the enlightenment gap. Okay, the enlightenment gap is refers to the break in our understanding between the proper relationship between matter and mind, okay, on the one hand, and clarity about the nature of scientific knowledge relative to subjective and social knowledge. Okay, um, you can see this in two gigantic ubiquitous problems the mind body problem, okay, that's everywhere. What is consciousness relationship with physics, basically? And then you see the modernist hey, scientific knowledge does yield these transcendent truths, okay, versus postmodern, no, they're contextualized inherently by subjective and social factors, okay, that lend them to be imminently constructed and not nearly as generalizable. Quick interjection. So when the postmodernists say that science is a social construction, the way that I hear that is of a, of, of somehow that implies that what is a social construction has less of some 
status of mm -hmm. importance or there's an arbitrary nature to it. Is that the case? Because to me, something could be a social construction and be true and be the most important. Totally. Well, right. And that is, I think your point is, and, and people have got to, uh, Ian Hawking talks about the social construction of what? Uh, I would certainly say that science is a social construction <laughs> that affords an object more transcendent realist analysis of aspects of the universe. <laughs> okay. okay um, sorry, can you repeat that once more? Yeah. Science. So science is a social construction that affords a transcendent propositional network analysis of aspects of the universe. Transcendent propositional analysis of aspects of the universe. Is that related to you talk? Is that what you talk is? Well, you talk and you talk affords that. You folks affords that view. Absolutely. Uh, through the, the, more specifically, here's a, a there's a more specific view that you talk affords because you have to understand what it's solving to really understand what it's getting at. So the enlightenment gap is the argument that, that we don't have any good philosophical systems that that are afford us this capacity to have coherence around matter and mind and science and social subjective knowledge. Point one. The specific specification of that is the second aspect of the problem, which is called the problem of psychology. Okay, so the problem of psychology is the problem uh, that my field has in specifying what it means, what its subject matter is about. Okay, the field of psychology completely collapses when you ask what does psychology actually mean. Okay, and the okay. reason why, is why does that? Yeah, sorry. And the reason is because when psychology got started. You know, it really gets us, I mean, and I mean, modern psychology, you can go back, there are lots of different what you mean by the term, and there's all this other stuff. But modern psychology is the institution that gets born in the emergence of the scientific revolution, okay, that then starts the process of asking, how do we apply the scientific method to this thing called, okay, then you get all these different aspects of it, you get, oh, it's subjective consciousness, okay. So psychology refers to what's behind your eyes in a human. This is what Wundt, Wilhelm Wundt, the father of psychology uh, in Germany in 1879, builds his psychology around bringing into the lab, studying your perception and okay, behind your eyes that you then report on. He trains people to be professional introspectionists so that you self-reflect and tell me what it is. Hey, what does that microphone look like to you? I ask you a bunch of questions and then you report and then I change a few things and I shift your perspective and then you, you report to me and I learn about your psychology. That's key part of your psychology is then the subjective conscious experience behind your eyes. That's one definition, okay? And that's called, that becomes what's called structuralism, which is basically the structure of conscious experience and its study. Okay. Another definition, William James, is like, no, it's not just what's behind your eyes, although consciousness is important. It's how you functionally adapt to its mental life and the functional adaptivity of animals and humans to life. Okay. It's the Sorry, way in which who started, you adjust. Who said that? William James, he's a functionalist. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so you have structuralism. Oh, it's the structure of your conscious experience. No, it's the functional way in which you adapt. Mental life is about how you essentially, to use John's term, one is a perspectival analysis. The other mm -hmm. is a participatory procedural kind of analysis. 
okay? One that's much more embedded in the agent arena relationship and the functional relations between the agent and arena versus the structure of perception itself. Okay. Okay. Then you get Sigmund Freud coming along and saying, hey, it's not about consciousness, especially not about rationalization. It's about the unconscious forces, okay? And the way they impinge upon psyche to create neurotic problems that we want to understand and it's fundamentally about the understanding of the dynamic unconscious okay, okay. you then get watson uh, john watson coming along and saying mentalistic constructs themselves are completely unscientific we know watson adopts a physicalist ontology and he adopts a scientific methodology that says we need to pair stimulus to response and bring that into the experimental analysis of behavior in the lab and see what stimuli pulls out what responses. Okay. okay. Well, stimulus responses, okay, subjective conscious experience of being, mental adaptation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. unconscious forces. Mm -hmm. Well, these are all fundamentally different things. Okay. And the different schools of psychology grabbed a hold of these different parts saw them as absolutely central to the aspect of what psychology is, and then competed in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, okay, to develop a particular dominance of the school, but none of them actually did. They dominated in certain sections, okay? Okay. In 1927, and actually it was seen before this, but the famous psychologist Lev Vygotsky writes about the crisis of psychology. Okay, the crisis of psychology is that psychology reference and has schools of thought that emphasize radically different subject matters. Okay, they just mean different things. All right, and there is no way to correspond. By the way, it's very similar to the way physics was before Newton. There's no way to correspond what these different don't, there's no meta perspective that effectively corresponds these particular elements into a coherent package. So you're basically left with competing schools of thought that have different vocabularies that emphasize different features of okay. what they're called this mental thing. Okay. okay. Well, essentially then psychology evolves a little bit further in two different directions that then converge together to give us modern empirical psychology. One emergence is the emergence of the cognitive revolution, okay? The cognitive revolution happens in the 1930s, 40s to 50s, so that by, well, Noam Chomsky is writing against Skinner in 1959. <laughs> He's given mm -hmm. the verbal behavior lashing uh, that he gave to Skinner. I know I mentioned this, of course, because Noam Chomsky has been on your channel a couple of times. That's super cool. Anyway, he's a legend in relationship to the cognitive science thing because he has such a famous critique of Skinner. Uh, but anyway, there's a whole growth uh, industry of the cognitive revolution that takes over from the behavioral revolution. And what it argues is basically, it says, hey, the nervous system in its broadest, uh, if you have a broad definition of the computational theory, it says the nervous system is a kind of information processing system, okay? And this gives psychology a quasi-weak ontology, meaning that the nervous system processes information. There are six million different ways in which this uh, emerges, but this does become a weak ontology for the field. And what happens to the field is it solidifies around behavioral science methodology. Okay, we're going to be behavioral scientists. So what you get right now is what's called modern empirical psychology or modern academic psychology <coughs> is the science of behavior 
and mental processes. That's 95% of the um, uh, 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 academic textbooks define psychology this way. The 5% that don't define it as the science of behavior, okay? And they're in a Skinnerian radical behavioral tradition, which is very different. Skinner, by the way, takes a total instrumental view of the world <laughs> uh, and an instrumental view of science. So you might have some appreciation for that, uh, given what we spoke of earlier. But anyway, the mainstream view takes a weak ontology that the nervous system is a kind of information processing, but doesn't specify. It says we take a scientific view, which means that behavior is that which is available to us to measure and obtain data about. That's what we can observe and gain measurement around. So it's the science of behavior that we can see, and then the information processing, mental processes that we infer. And then we build research programs, schools of thought and ideas to map the mental process, what Skinner called the black box, to explain okay. the input-output behavioral relations that we can see. So it's a science of behavior and mental processes. Technically, that's called methodological behaviorism. Uh, from those that follow the science, philosophy of science of the field, which basically means we take the methods of science, analyze the behavior process, and infer mental uh, uh, models, create mental models to explain the functional relations. Okay. So anyway, that's a shit show from a, <laughs> from a Utah perspective. Okay. Utah comes along and says, oh my God, let's look at what physics is and biology and chemistry and realize that they actually have a shared ontology, biology is the science of life, living behaviors, living organisms and their behavioral processes are what biology is about. The fact that you get to biology into neuroscience and ethology, and then you basically go to psychology and you ask, well, what is the science of psychology about? And you're actually, well, we're actually, we apply them. We are unified by science because we apply the methods of psychology. Mm -hmm. I mean, science. That's what, so, so all of a sudden you have, oh, it's physics is the science of energy and matter and their behavior change. Oh, chemistry is the science of chemical energy and the molecular structure change process. Oh, biology is the science of life. Geology is the science over here. All these other natural sciences, they have a very clear ontological relation to the world. Psychology breaks that, okay? So there is no, there's no clear articulation about the thing in the world that psychology references. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean, all right? Uh, and you talk solves the problem of psychology. You talk says, okay, this is a clear articulation of the ontology of the mental, okay? It specifies what is meant by the mental and it specifies why the mental was so unbelievably tricky to get a grip around from modern empirical natural science. And it clarifies all the different aspectualized aspects of the diamond that different people saw under different relations and then puts them in coherent relationship to each other. So you can now grab the whole diamond, rotate it, empathize with each particular perspective and afford yourself to see an eidetic through line and hold the whole diamond up and be like, oh, there's the diamond. That's the ontology of the mental, okay? So you talk solves the ontology of the mental, which couldn't have been, which wasn't solved, which was actually a foundational, logical, philosophical, scientific problem that emerged uh, with the first enlightenment. And that's so, and once you get the solution to the problem of the mental, then a whole truckload of things fall under place in relationship to affording a coherent, synthetic, philosophical understanding. Okay, let me see. Let me see if I can 
make a summation of some of the historical developments of psychology that you outlined. So the first was, I think, in the late 1800s from someone named Volt or, or Holt. Volt. Mm-hmm. Volt. Volt. Okay. <laughs> and that's like psychometrics? Or is that different? Well, psychometrics is different. Actually, Galton does psychometrics and other people. Psychometrics is the process by which we build a quantitative systems to measure change. Uh, this was introspection to attempt a measurement on first-person conscious experience. So Wundt is do- what Titchener, his student, comes over to the United States and calls structuralism. Wundt never does. Historically, it's often known as structuralism because it refers to essentially the structure of consciousness as the study, which you achieve through introspection. Okay. That's the Okay, so structural? Topic. Structural? Is that what it's called? Structure or structural? Structuralism. Mm-hmm. Structuralism. Great, great. Mm-hmm. Structuralism. And then came about the, don't help me, then came about the, so you can tell I'm a student, then came about the, okay, I have to skip that one because, because I've, I've forgotten. Then the depth psychologist, so that's Jung, mm-hmm. was, we're analyzing the unconscious. Then behavioralism or behaviorism came about. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the third one was what? Let me think. Oh, this is going to be painfully boring for people. But just give me a, give me about ten seconds because I, I like I, I mentioned, I I love to play. I like mental cool. games. That's cool. Okay, let's. See. We're learning about how you how you think as you sort this through. So we'll, we'll frame it up that way. It'll be functional that way. Mm-hmm. Ah, pragmatist. Like it was William James. The okay. functionalism. Yeah. yeah see, yeah. I, I, yeah. I tried to drop you a little hint there. <laughs> ah, I didn't see. I didn't see. Okay. 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 And then, and then you're saying, so, so these are like four disparate views of, of what psychology is or how to investigate psychology. We have something at the root. We don't know what it is. We're trying to get to it. And then maybe in the sixties or seventies, a fifth one about information processing because of the development of computers or for whatever reason. Yep. came about and then the first two so sorry or behavioralism or behaviorism i don't know mm-hmm. how it's pronounced behaviorism behaviorism, behavioral, mm-hmm. behaviorism mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. information processing stuck around and these three became somewhat execrated or abandoned or ostracized okay well they're, they're just left on the floor and then be- behaviorism and, and information processing became dominant some fusion of these and that was called the first wave of cognitive science or the first wave of psychology or what was that called? Well, okay, so um, the cognitive revolution replaces behaviorism in relationship to, it allows, it says, okay, behaviorism in academic psychology, behaviorism gets dominant in the United States at least. Of course, psychology is a complicated field, but the United States is the big producer of psychological knowledge after say 1920, okay? And we become the dominant uh, dispensers of psychological knowledge. So the psychology is dominated by the American perspective, uh, although Europe is doing many important things. So I don't want to overshoot that, but it does become consolidated. Behaviorism reigns in academic psychology up until the 1950s. Cognitive psychology, the cognitive view comes along and that then brings the idea that you can talk about the mind, okay? As an inform- you, it's okay now to do black box modeling now with your input, output and computational structuring. Okay, so that becomes re-established as legitimate, all right? And this is the 1960s, we'll say, okay? Um, But you're still doing science, okay? And so how do you do science? Well, science fundamentally, as an epistemological method, science fundamentally has got to be tied to measurement, okay? And observation. You have to be able to basically say what it is that you're seeing. So you operationalize sort of what you're seeing 
you generate some sort of quantification on that, and then you analyze that based on certain kinds of predictions. Okay, so this all sciences are going to take some kind of analysis of behavioral change, do some measurement on that, okay, and then infer and what it is that that's going actually, what are the causal sequences. So methodological behaviorism is the idea that, okay, there are mental processes, we have access to the behavioral consequences of the mental processes, we're going to measure that stuff. And so the science of psychology is the science of the behavior and the inference of mental processes that we investigate through research. Okay, well, what I've learned from all of this is that I need to take a look into the into you talk. <laughs> Good. All right. <laughs> By the way, do you have a book on it or is it yeah. just strewn? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just finishing my second book. Um, so the first book I did was called A New Unified Theory of Psychology. Okay. Um, and I generated four foundational ideas, I argue. Okay. Four big picture um, okay. ideas. Okay. Okay, uh, that trans that zoom us out uh, and create a meta theoretical architecture. Okay. 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 Meta theoretical architecture. I mean that if you take these four, you learn these four ideas. Okay. I can then assimilate and integrate all the major findings and research programs and schools of thought with them. Okay. So it's like, hey, it's a bunch of noise out there. Everybody's playing different instruments. You learn these four ideas and they create the capacity to coordinate and generate music. So that now we see that, yes, Freud was saying correct things to a degree. And Skinner was saying correct things to a degree. Okay. Um, and so forth. And indeed, the first paper I wrote in 2003 called The Tree of Knowledge System and the Theoretical Unification of Psychology argued, showed how to take Skinner and Freud and place them through the lens of Utah and make them sing together. Okay. So that's just an example. And I took those two to start because in terms of their influence and their diametric opposition, radical behaviors and psychoanalysis in many ways are very, very different systems. And I said, I can take their key insights and I can align them. I can align them with a physical, biological, psychological, and social picture of the universe and make that sing. And then I developed a richer articulation of that. And then in the Unified Theory book, 2011, I said, here's the meta-theoretical architecture applied mostly at the scientific findings of the field, organized, okay, like cognitive dissonance, attribution research, social psych findings, personality theory, et cetera. Okay? I take all those findings, run it through the lens, and see that you have now a coherent meta-theoretical architecture. Okay? That can, is up to the task. This second book that I'm on goes a second layer deeper because I realized that actually to get to the diagnosis, okay, the issue isn't so much just meta theory, but there's a deeper level of metaphysics, okay, and ontology. It's like, what do we mean by the concepts and categories that we're using when we use the term mental, when we use the term behavior, when we use the term science, okay? We need a metaphysical map of our ontological and epistemological structure relative to what we're saying the world is relative to us as knowers. And the Utah system maps that in a new way. And it maps it in a way that argues to be fundamentally more coherent 
than any knowledge system that came off of science because science broke our capacity to really place the knower known and matter mind relation in a clear, coherent picture. So that's what Utah then says within the context of a naturalism. It's agnostic and it's called, it's an endo-natural position. It just says, hey, this is what science tried to do. This is why it broke. This is how you fix it. And now you can see the whole. Okay, so I gotta get going in about seven minutes or so. Yep. But I have Me two too. questions that, I have two questions that, that, that I'd like answered concisely if they can be. So sure. I'll just say, state them. So one is like, what's the reception of Utah been like in, in your field? Mm -hmm. And then second, there's the there's an approach called phenomenology you're extremely familiar with. But I see that as like naive, naive realism. It's taking all of this and saying, <laughs> no, this is primary. This Everything you sure. see is prime. Everything you see is real. There right. actually are no illusions, right. at least when it comes to your perceptions. It's real. Yeah. That's fundamental. So then right. I wanted to know, well, where does that stand? Okay, okay, so those are two quick questions, okay. if you could. Two quick questions. Uh, the response to the field has Hopefully been sort of mixed. Answer. It all depends on your uh, what you would mean. Uh, the field is committed to a particular way, institutionally committed to a particular way that I'm saying, hey, it's you guys are over-investing in a particular way. It's a mistake. You're generating lots of information, but not really good knowledge. You need a fundamental upgrade or redistribution of the core yeah. assumptions and emphasis. Yeah. The, the field's not looking for this solution right now. In fact, the field agreed that it would never find a unified view. So for a long time, people look and, and they don't they even see it as a problem. It. They no longer see it as a problem. Yeah. They just decide it okay. couldn't be solved. So screw it. So and let's say what you're doing be, is unnecessary. Uh, well, it's just, in, it's unsolvable. You can't solve the problem. Uh, now, my point would be is like, if you agreed, you can't solve it. And now somebody come along and said they solve it. You should look <laughs> yeah. as to whether yep, they did yep, solve yep. it. Because when we tried to solve it, everyone agreed it was initially a super important problem to solve. And then you couldn't solve it and you gave up on it. So to me saying that we agreed it was important originally. So we should go back to that if you actually can solve it. But the field then just left it and let it go. And once an institution is focused in a particular way, it if if all the incentives and the edging questions i'm aware here, of that yeah then you're you're like you're on the outside so i'm on the outside that's one okay. thing the second thing that you talk about is really really important okay so the, the utah structure has uh, a key aspects to it that frame how you understand epistemology and ontology okay so one of the things that is central is called the tree of knowledge system okay the tree of knowledge system is the first map I generated of big history, but I, I didn't know it at the time, but I call big history. And this gave me the map to understand science that placed mind in proper relationship to matter. So this gave me my big history view that I could now see what science mapped mind to be. Okay. That's called a the, big history. Well, the, well, there's a field called big history. If you haven't oh, heard okay. that, uh, Dave Christian developed that. I, I was developing this completely independently, but I'm happy to call my tree of knowledge a map of big history. Okay? okay. Because all that means is it maps cosmic evolution on the dimensions of time and complexification, basically. All big history does, it says, oh, there's a big bang about 13.8 billion years ago. Things were energy information. Then all of things got started getting more and more complex and we can trail our complexification through time on a time by complexity graph. The tree of knowledge gives a new time by complexity graph. So it's a new map of big history. Okay. And that is a, and it's a new way to think about a scientific ontology, one that's up to the task of clarifying what the subject matter of psychology is. Okay. 
So that's one key element. So it's a science, the first set of insights are scientific, okay? But they're scientific in a real, in a, from a, to ground scientific psychology and place it in proper relationship to the psyche, okay? The psyche refers to the first person ideographic experience of being in the world. So it's Kurt's position from behind your eyes, okay? One of the reasons that the science the scientific epistemology essentially obliterates the psyche, okay? It pretends it doesn't exist, okay? Which is a horrible error, all right? Oh, man, um, so I'm well aware, the, the, deeply aware. Yeah, well, so you talk, as a psychologist, I'm, I'm very cognizant of that dynamic, okay? I'm also cognizant that the scientific psychological position is a behavioral position. It's an outside-in epistemic view, okay? Um, at least that's the way I was positioned scientific epistemology. Okay. But there's an inside out, uh, epistemic view. There's a, in you talk, there's a thing called the coin, specifically the I quad coin. Okay. The I quad coin is a psychotechnology that organizes our understanding of the psyche. Okay. And it places the psyche in relationship to science via map by the tree. So Utah holds a very clear relation between psyche, okay? And you were saying, hey, for some people, psyche is like everything. That's really true. And there's an actual there's truth to that. I can explain what I would mean by, well, when you experience something, that's what's called an ontic epistemic realization that is true in and of itself. Uh, I know you don't have time, but we could, you know, at one Next point. Time. Next but time. anyway, iQuad holds that and it places those kinds of true subjective qualitative ideographic truth claims in relationship to the objective generalized behavioral truth claims. And part of the synthesis that Utah achieves is getting the proper relationship between a behavioral exterior epistemological view and a psyche interior epistemological view in right relation. And Utah affords that for, I think, really the first time with deep, rich meta theoretical clarity. Well, man, thank you. I feel like, yes, you've given me plenty to think about, man. All right. Well, cool. Hey, man, I, I you know, I really did. Uh, I think you're super cool what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I definitely wanted to, I don't know that we covered all the stuff, but I just want to honor you. You know, I've, I've listened to, I don't know how many hours of stuff that I've listened to that you've generated and given me stuff to think about. So uh, I'm glad I can give you some things to think about, uh, but I deeply, deeply appreciate all the beautiful work you're doing and I wish you the best of luck with it. As someone who I respect, I'm curious to know your answer to this, if you don't mind. I, I'm, what is it about the Theories of Everything podcast that you like or find different? It's easy to find the similarities. I'm always curious as to what are well, the, the, the distinguishing factors. I mean, you know, uh, without being, you know, I operate yeah, at a fairly yeah, high please. level in relationship yeah. to these uh, issues. And so I want a rich... Uh, you know, I'll, uh, even my own podcast, I'm very agreeable. I like to, not to say that you're not, but it's like, I, I bring people in. It's like, hey, you know, tell me about your life. Oh, that's cool. That's really interesting. And when they say things I don't really agree with, it's an hour to an hour and a half podcast. I kind of gloss it over and that's fine. And I think it's conversational. You, you know, you're like, wait a minute, ask this. 
you ask you ask rich questions. You do so in a very, very professional, collegial way. I, I'm, I find you endearing and I find you really bright and I love the people that you bring on and you get really, so when I'm like, oh, you know, uh, Anil Seth's got a, oh yeah, he's got a Theories of Everything podcast. I'm going to learn more about Anil Seth. That's the first thing I go to. I get three hours of Anil Seth and I was like, I now understand that guy's version of reality. Uh, the Chris Langdon thing. I mean, I didn't understand uh, his frame at all until I listened to your thing. You know, Donald Hoffman, uh, the whole Verbeke. I didn't know Bernardo Castro. So you've introduced me to a huge number of individuals and they do it in a way that's very, very rich. And for me, at least at the kind of level that I need to make sure that I can really understand what they're saying. Uh, and I'm in a position to do that. What I'm amazed at, and I don't know if this sounds elitist, is how many people actually love it. <laughs> I was like, you know, this is high level shit uh, that you're actually able to generate. And lots of people love it. It's like, maybe there is an market out here of this kind of stuff. I don't know how to find it. That, huh? <laughs> I didn't know how to find it. Um, but anyway, so that's what I love. It's a, it's a you know, you, anybody that gives me, you know, 50 hours worth of real rich uh, living for free. <laughs> you know, give me a hug, brother. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so before we wrap up, do you have any questions for me before I go? And well, we actually, I, I, I do like to ask people just sort of like, you know, uh, uh, to sort of end, if there's anything that you want to uh, make sure we put in the show notes or if there's any uh, visions, hopes, ideas, uh, things sure. for you on the, uh, on the horizon uh, that you'd like to share uh, as you look forward. Do you have a... Sorry, do you have an intro that you place before this or just starts with the podcast? No, anyway? it starts with it. Welcome. Yeah. Okay. You talking with Grant. Great, great, great. Okay. I have several projects. I don't know if I can announce them. I would like, I'll, I'll tell you about some of them offline. There's some okay. projects that are, well, they're extremely difficult to, to, well, to think about and then to implement. And I, I don't know if, well, we can talk okay. about them afterwards. We'll, we'll so I'll just give a, give a spiel. Yeah, yeah there's sure. Theories of Everything, the podcast. People can mm -hmm. find it on YouTube by searching mm -hmm. Theories of Everything. Yeah, we'll and make sure we have a link on, to that, sure. On Spotify and iTunes and all the audio platforms, yes. if you just search Theories of Everything. And just for those who are unclear as to what the heck is Theories of Everything, it's <laughs> firstly, it's a physics term, and then it can be generalized to certain to a, a philosophical term. And I tend to investigate both. And I consider there to be something called cognitive toes. So physics toes and cognitive toes. And I consider yours to be a cognitive toe. Yep. Verveke has a cognitive toe, though he doesn't call, there, there's no name for it. Like you have a unified theory of knowledge. He doesn't have a name for his. Maybe he just says that to me, I see every answer for Verveke as ending in relevance realization. Every well, right. single, uh, bring it down. <laughs> that's, his, that's certainly his, his core yes. line. And I like to emphasize recursive relevance realization. That adds a, adds a nice flavor to it. But anyway, yes. And well, so if you're interested in, in the conversations like Greg mm -hmm. and I just had, then please search theories of everything and, and take a look and take a listen. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, Greg. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, uh, wish you best of luck with that and those other projects. So uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and time. And I appreciate all the questions as well.